want to talk about an astronomer, but somebody in Perth nicked my hero. So um, I thought I'd talk about these guys because they, they actually did something really important and um, it's something that we here in Australia, it affects us every spring and summer in particular. Um, and um, also they were chemists. Um, and my brother's a chemist, so, um, and they often get a bad rap. <laughs> so, um, anybody a chemist here tonight? Oh, yay! All right. <laughs> um, anybody heard of um, Roland and Molina? Does it ring a bell? No? Yes? No? No, I don't see anybody jumping up. Yeah, that's the thing, because you've all heard of the ozone hole, haven't you? Yeah. Okay, so they were, they were the guys who were basically saved us from the ozone hole. Okay, so let's um, go back to the beginning. <laughs> right, so, um, so uh, Frank Sherwood Rowland came from Ohio. Um, he was born back in 27, and, uh, 1927, and he had the good fortune of leaving high school towards the end of World War II. Um, and if you've read any of the demographic histories around that time, there was um, a bit of a hole. If you, if you were leaving school um, around about time, you, you could basically do whatever you want. Um, he ended up with um, an arts degree, which is interesting since his father was a maths professor. Um, but anyway, uh, and, he, um, and after a, a few adventures, um, uh, his, his parents talked him um, in going back to the University of Chicago. Um, and he got a, a post-grad place there studying chemistry under Bill Libby. Um, Bill Libby was the person who developed the carbon-14 dating um, method. And he got a, he got a Nobel, no, the 1960 Nobel Prize for that. Um, so, um, and he wasn't the only Nobel Prize winner there. Now, if you know... The University of Chicago, it was the place that had the very first nuclear reactor um, in the sports bunker. Um, so, um, Roland got to hear lectures by Enrico Fermi, um, Harold Urey, um, Henry Torb, who also did chemistry, and um, Maria Mayer, who um, got, um, shared a Nobel Prize for physics as well. So she had, um, he, he had some pretty famous teachers, um, but Libby was um, very influential um, for him as well. Um, <coughs> because of the, the nuclear reaction, reactor connection, he did um, some research connected with that, um, such as putting chemicals in the flux of a nuclear reactor. I don't know how you do that, but anyway, he did that. And he ended up getting funding from the um, Atomic Energy Commission. And, and that, that sort of went on and on, um, you know, um, uh, th throughout his career, um, which was pretty handy. And he ended up working on chlorine and fluorine, which is pretty important to the ozone story. And um, he also ended up at a, a conference in uh, Florida in 1972. And he heard about... Um, a little, well, not a little journey, a, big, a rather large journey that a certain someone called James Lovelock had taken. Um, now, this, this story, um, when I was looking into it, it's sort of like, it's almost a cast of thousands 
and it's sort of like famous name after famous name sort of falls out of it. So while I, it's like, yes, I want to tell this story of these, these guys that, that sort of raise the alarm. There's all these other people that turn up in it as well. Um, if you know James Lovelock, if you've heard the name, and maybe you have, he's 92, he's still kicking around in England and um, making comments on things. Um, he he um, co-created the what we call the Gaia theory about how the Earth is a entire living thing, um, and we should treat it as a, as an entire living organism. And he's a self-funded scientist. He's an independent, um, so he doesn't listen to anybody except himself. <laughs> basically. Um, he's a very interesting fellow. Um, anyway, so he decided, um, James Lovelock decided he'd go on a, a little um, cruise around the world um, on a ship called the Shackleton and um, he, went up to, he went up to the Arctic, down to the Antarctic, um, took lots of air samples and um, he found that there were um, CFCs um, all over the world chlorofluorocarbons and um, <clears throat> he thought oh this is um, um, very interesting um, perhaps because um, they're inert they don't do anything perhaps we can use them to trace other chemicals in the atmosphere um, and Roland heard this and he just went oh no this is, this is not good um, Lovelock's got it all wrong because um, being um, a physical chemist, he knew that once these CFCs were exposed to sunlight, um, they would start breaking down and causing trouble. But he didn't know how much trouble. So, um, so some work had to be done. Now, if you don't um, know about CFCs, they're chlorofluorocarbons, so, and they sort of came into common use with Thomas Midgley Jr. Now, if you're a laboratory um, regular, you would have heard his name before. He's our favourite arch-villain, um, putting lead into petrol and uh, um, uh, sort of creating um, the CFCs under the name of Freon, um, that inert gas um, that we that was put into fridges, um, cooled cars down, made fridges work really well, um, put in aerosols, um, sprayed on your hair, sprayed under your arm, I suppose in all sorts of other aerosols. Oh yes! <laughs> I think it was all those, those 50s and 60s hairdos and um, all those ladies spraying away and um, uh, that's, what, that's where it was going, um, up into the air. Um, so, and everybody thought, oh, this is, this is lovely, you know, <laughs> we've got this, this lovely safe guest spray away, everybody. Yeah, so, um, and off they go. Um, all right, so, um, so that's, that's, that's what they are and that's where they're coming on. But, but we were using so much of them, um, the, the people were sort of going, oh, well, they, they, they didn't think it would be a problem. But, but it was. Um, so Roland decided he would look into it and he got an assistant to help and he got Mario Molina. Now, Molina was a, a son of a, 
Mexican diplomat, and he was born in 43, so he was a bit younger. Um, he came to the University of California where Roland was um, as an, uh, to be an assistant professor to Roland there. Um, Molina had always wanted to be a chemist um, ever since he was really, really young. Um, and he'd, he'd got this... Um, he, he was born as a son of a diplomat in Mexico City and his aunt Esther was a, a chemist and she helped him set up a lab in their bathroom in Mexico City. So... Uh, <laughs> um, and uh, so he learnt to do his first experiments at home in the bathroom. Um, ha having a bit of money, um, he got sent off to Switzerland at age 11 to go to boarding school because um, the best chemists were in Germany, of course. And, uh, um, but eventually he came back to Mexico and then he ended up um, uh, in California. And um, Roland said, oh, oh hi, um, I've got a whole lot of projects you can help me out with um, Melina, which one would you like to do? And Melina looked at them and said, I'll take the one I know the least about, this one about the atmosphere. Um, you know, where are these CFCs going and what are they doing? Well, it was a bit of a surprise, but uh, anyway, they set to work. So, what happens with them? Well, the CFCs, um, they go into the atmosphere and um, they, they go up, they go um, through the troposphere, which is where all our weather happens. It's sort of, you know, the, the um, 10 kilometres up. And then they go into the stratosphere, which is next level up. Um, and it's a bit what volcanic ash does as well. Um, goes up to the next level. So that's, um, you know, sort of up to 50 k's. Um, but uh, what happens is that um, uh, they meet the ozone layer, which is about... 20 to 30 k's up. And uh, what Molina found when he did the equations, and this was the really alarming part, um, the, the theory, once he did it, um, the chlorine didn't react once and then get used up. It was actually a catalytic um, reaction um, the chlorine went on and on and on and on. It just went on to the next bit of ozone and kept breaking it apart um, up to 100,000 times before the sunlight um, eventually um, broke up the CFCs and just said, no, that's it, um, you, you're finished. It's, it's 100 years, 100 years before the CFCs would break down. Now, if you're wondering what the big deal with ozone is and... Why well, you go, know, well, just doesn't really matter if we have an ozone layer. <laughs> um, ozone is um, oxygen in three, mole three molecules of oxygen stuck together. Um, we need two molecules of oxygen stuck together to breathe. So we have 21% of that we're breathing in all the time. Um, so ozone is... Um, three molecules stuck together, and we don't actually want to breathe that in. That's actually um, toxic to us. Um, I don't even remember, um, when I was at uni in the early 90s, um, we used to have big rooms full of photocopiers, and do you remember photocopiers? Who's old enough to remember photocopiers? Um, <laughs> yeah. 
and the photocopiers would um, put out lots of ozone and we'd have to have fans. It's like, you can't be in the photocopier room without the fan on. It's not, not good for you. Um, <laughs> you'll get cancer. And, um, and um, yeah, anyway, so it's got, it's got a quite sort of acrid, tangy smell to it, um, if you ever come across it. Um, and, but um, we, so, so we don't want it down here, but we do want it up in the atmosphere about 20 to 30 kilometres high because it stops um, UV radiation coming down, particularly UVB. Um, and you might think, well, so what? You get lots more vitamin D. Yay! Okay. Um, but the um, bad thing is, um, as people, we get lots more skin cancer, we get cataracts um, and things like that. Um, but it would also damage, um, it would kill marine phytoplankton. So you'd be looking at the complete collapse of the marine ecosystem. So um, krill eat the phytoplankton. Um, you've got no krill, you've got no whales, you've got no tuna, fish, whatever. So complete collapse there. And it also would damage your crops because um, a UV light kills um, cyanobacteria. Now, they fix nitrogen. So all your legumes would cark it, basically. And um, in particular, it would kill rice. And you're thinking, well, rice isn't a legume. Rice is a grass. Um, but um, rice is actually has an association with a, a cyanobacteria that does a bit of fertilising for it. Um, so killing off rice is like, I don't know, um, I was trying to do a ca calculation in my head how much of the world um, relies on rice to keep it alive, which is pretty big proportion. So um, we'd be looking at um, pretty catastrophic <laughs> um, situation if we had no ozone. Okay, so um, Roland and Relina were pretty alarmed at what they saw on paper. Um, the problem was they didn't have the physical evidence, um, uh, but they wanted to tell people about it. So this was, they, they realised this roundabout 1973-1974. So they published a paper in Nature magazine, uh, the very famous magazine, um, about the series of the issue and um, basically it was sort of like you could hear a pin drop, you know, crickets. Everybody, doot, doot, doot. <laughs> nobody wanted to know. And it was probably um, a bit of, they didn't use the right language. So I was just thinking about Sophia's talking about use of language. Um, um, they, they sort of hid the seriousness <laughs> of the whole thing, probably, and they used possible onset of environmental problems to describe it all. Hmm, okay, all right. So, so everybody went, mm, yeah, whatever. Okay, so nothing happened. I thought, well, this is not good. We need, we need to get a bit more attention. Um, so they did something really drastic for scientists. They, they held a press conference, okay? <laughs> and they said, um, and they got down to the point, they said, we need a total ban on CFCs. Oh, that got everybody's attention. 
I said, you've got to be joking. You know, this is, this is an $8 billion industry in 1974. You've got to be joking that we're going we're gonna to shut this down. Um, so this is like um, DuPont and everything um, was... Um, because you know, Dupont made a whole lot. You know, Midgley worked for Dupont, and that, and and even Lovelock at this point was saying, "Oh, you, you can't do that," you know, because um, he actually liked the Dupont scientists, and he was like going, "Oh, gee, you're overreacting a bit, aren't you, Roland? You calm down, you know, <laughs> be just a bit more reserved, like us British scientists, you know." Anyway, there's this, this is lovely quote that I want to read out. And the problem is I want to read it from this book because I've seen the same quote attributed to two different people. Um, and this one um, puts it to um, uh, one of the um, representative, Paul G. Rogers from the um, Public Health and Environment um, from, uh, from the US. Because the US was kind of driving US respectable people in those days. Um, <laughs> And uh, there's, there's a lovely bit in here. <laughs> um, the entire matter rings of a science fiction tale, he said. One we have all heard how a planet now barren was destroyed by its very inhabitants um, had not the evidence been brought forth by such reputable men of science. It would, uh, yeah. Oh, wouldn't we love to have some reputable men of science these days? Um, it would seem like a bitter black humour that the earth may be endangered and the villains of the situation were billions of aerosol cans. Yes, I can um, see it now, you know, just the, the ground littered um, with all these aerosol cans, you know, um, when the, the archaeologists come down. So, um, there we go. So, uh, it, was, it was mocked. Yeah, and they... Um, but they kept trying. They kept trying really hard. Um, the National Academy of Sciences in the US was sort of did get concerned enough. They looked into it independently, um, and their findings um, did lead to a ban on CFCs in the US from 1978. And then that kicked on some of the Scandinavian countries to ban CFCs as well. But the political climate changed, um, and everybody sort of went, "Ah, oh, that the crying wolf a bit." We're not really, still not seeing the evidence. We had to wait a little bit longer, but it came along and um, finally turned up in 1985. This, this is where I bring the astronomy into it. I still don't get away from the astronomy, okay? <laughs> um, there was a pub another published paper in um, Nature. The British Antarctic Survey had been monitoring ozone for over 20 years and um, they just the guy had been doing it, had been doing it very quietly, and his boss had been going, what, what, what are you doing it for? You're just wasting your time. No, nobody's going to care about these figures. Why do you want to look at the ozone for? And he says, well, I'm just going to keep doing it. <laughs> anyway, um, he, he'd been doing it since about 1957. Um, and, he just, <laughs> and anyway, round about 1977, he suddenly noticed a big plunge in the levels around about springtime. But the problem was he didn't want to say anything because the NASA scientists weren't picking up anything different. They, they had a satellite measuring ozone overhead, one of these newfangled satellites, because satellites measuring stuff overhead were still pretty new in the 70s. Um, so NASA wasn't saying anything, so he wasn't sure that he wanted to say anything. and, and 
looked like he was an idiot. Um, so what he did was he, he ordered a new measuring instrument, just to be sure, in case he had a faulty one. Um, so he got that for spring 1983, uh, took it off to his usual spot and took it off to a second spot. Um, there was 40% depletion that spring. Yeah, so <laughs> he went, uh, I think I've got to say something here. So he threw caution in the wind, um, wrote a paper, and that got um, published um, May 1985. So NASA, of course, um, the NASA scientist in um, charge of the, the satellite said, you've got to be crazy, you don't my satellite is not showing any difference. And the poor guy from the British Antarctic Survey said, I think you better go and check your data, because <laughs> I'm pretty sure about mine. Um, so <laughs> the, poor, the poor NASA scientist went and checked his data, and he was mortified to find out that he was wrong. What he'd been doing was he told his computer to discard any anomalies. So his computer had been happily discarding all these ultra-low figures because they looked really wrong. And so <laughs> they'd been using all these false data for the last 10 years, um, when really they should have been keeping all these ultra-low figures <laughs> that they'd been getting every spring. And so when they put all the discarded figures in, they found they had evidence of a hole as far back as 1976. And so suddenly um, everybody just went, oh my goodness. <laughs> and it was like, it was like a, the whole horror story was there. <gasps> because it was even worse. Um, Al, um, Roland and Melina, I thought, oh, maybe there'll be 5% depletion. Um, they hadn't thought that it would happen quite as fast as that. Um, and so it was only two years later the Montreal Protocol was put into place to ban CFCs all around the world. Now, we know that is not, hasn't solved everything. Um, just recently they've found CFCs being produced in China. Um, but I, I do remember seeing something about CFC, um, the ozone hole, has started shrinking a little bit. So, so there is good news and bad news. Um, but without the um, tireless work of Roland in particular, um, hammering on for at least 10 years um, to get people to notice, um, maybe all the, the extra work wouldn't have gone on. Now, they were um, awarded the 1995 Nobel Prize for Chemistry along with um, Paul Krusen who did some work on nitrous oxides, which also affect the ozone hole. And um, Roland passed away in 2012, but we still have Molina with us. Um, he's 75. He's currently um, climate advisor to the president of Mexico. Um, he has an asteroid named after him, um, 9680 Molina. And um, I've found out September the 6th is uh, International Day for the Preservation of the Ozone Layer. So uh, write that in your diaries, folks. September 6th, World Ozone Day. And uh, I'd just like to say uh, hooray for arts degrees and hooray for science aunties. 
Thank you very much. <laughs>